Hello and welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind a tabletop. I'm here with Greg, as always. Hello. And today we will be reviewing Door in a special midweek episode. Yay! So happy Gen Con, everyone, for those of you listening up, and uh, we hope that you had a lot of fun there. Otherwise, if you're listening to this afterwards, hello, welcome, <laughs> and I hope you enjoy the review. Yeah. But first, before we jump into that, let's talk about what we've been playing. As is customary. But yeah, so we just finished up a new game, or well, new to new to both of us, uh, mm-hmm. Palace of Mad King Ludwig. Yeah. We've talked about castles a couple of times. I think we reviewed it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one of our one of our old sort of standbys. Yep. We, we enjoy it. We have friends who enjoy it. So it's always easy to get to table. Mm-hmm. Um, but Palace is a little bit different. Rather than building your own castles for the Mad King, the two to four of you are working together to build a single gigantic castle. So scoring is based less on how effectively you can, you know, kind of work with the shapes and work with the sizes and create your own castle effectively. And it has a lot more to do with placement. All of the rooms in Palace are squares, as opposed to being different sizes and shapes. But just like in castles, each of them has different abilities depending on what type of room it is. So there's, you know, sleeping rooms and, and kitchens and utility rooms, all of which will be familiar to anyone who's played castles. But each of them has slightly different things that they do. And what you're trying to do is still get those completion bonuses. But now those are going to be complicated by the fact that you're placing adjacent to everyone else's rooms. And a a room that you placed might give them a bonus and vice versa. So it's a lot about very skillful, strategic positioning of your rooms in places that people want to place. And people places that people couldn't screw you over. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, absolute, like you know, perfecting the, the floor plan. Yeah. And it, it's interesting because there are incentives for you to work together with other people as well, because each of the rooms has a certain number of doors and the doors are color coded. Mm-hmm. And if another room is placed and the, the door corresponds to the same color as the door that it's matching to, uh, you get a swan, which is the currency and uh, part of the victory point collection for the game. And so the cool part here is that if you place next to someone else's room, you both get those. Yeah. Versus if you place next to one of your own rooms, only you get it. So there is a little bit of an incentive to like, you know, keep something open, like leave open the anything can be placed here door. Mm -hmm. So like the, the colorless door so that anything that's connected there is going to give you a swan rather than if someone else places and uh, you know they can also take advantage of that swan because if they don't match the colors then they don't get one yeah so it's some interesting sort of almost diplomatic gameplay going on there uh and then there's also sort of the this timer almost mechanic Mm -hmm. uh, of the moat so each time you complete a room you place a number of moat tiles based on how many room tiles you've already gone through that you go through stacks and each stack that you complete reveals a moat tile. So the further through the game you get, yeah. the more and more and more moats you're placing each time a room is completed. So you, you've kind of got this race against time, and by the time you finish the game, everybody's like, ah, I need to, you know, I need to place this one room in order to get this completion bonus, but if I... If, you know, someone else does it first, then they're going to place, I think when I ended the game, I placed eight moat tiles in a single turn, which was just way more than the the perimeter of the castle could hold. So definitely an interesting mechanic there. And overall, 
I'm excited to play it again. Me too. I, I really like it. I like how it takes the mechanics of Castles of Mad King Ludwig, where the interaction is only in getting the tiles, and really translates that to a competitive kind of multiplayer game where it feels right. It feels good, and like it feels intuitive. So I'm I'm very happy with the game as of right now. I am looking forward to playing it again. It was a lot of fun this time. Yeah, so stand by for further dispatches. Exactly. Uh, we also actually got to play some T-Dragon Society as yes, well. Yes, always love that. Mm-hmm. My sister was in town, so we played with her and taught her how to play the game. Mm-hmm. And as always, we had forgotten at least one rule when we were playing before. <laughs> yeah, this is this is actually a rule that I don't think I had ever played with when I was teaching the game. I'm yeah. sure that, you know, the people at the Renegade booth when we bought it at Origins taught us, um, but I hadn't remembered it ever since, which is that cards that proc, essentially, you know, uh, when you reveal a growth card of a particular type, you can draw extra cards. Each of those cards can only fire once per turn, Yeah. Uh, which I had totally forgotten. So, you know, when I was teaching my parents while I was home or teaching my friends, it was always, you know, oh, if you get lucky, you can just go on a tear yeah. and flip over like half of your deck. Well, no, you can't. Mm-hmm. So, whoops. <laughs> yeah. I mean, either way, I think it's still it's still a pretty good game. I still enjoy it. Oh, um, definitely. But it, it's just, it's interesting to see how other people react to it when, they, when like learning. It's like uh, just the process of like, you know, learning how the strategy works and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. is, is interesting to see in like this little game. Right. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, you sort of mentioned seeing how people react. One of the things that your sister found really frustrating and that multiple people actually have found really frustrating is just getting screwed by mischief cards. Oh, yeah. 100%. Uh, Which they're an important mechanic and I appreciate them. uh, But I do recognize how for a person learning the game, it can be really frustrating to be like, okay, I only need one more, you know, point, one more tea leaf in order to buy this massive, powerful memory card. And then, oh, dang it, I have to discard, you know, a, a two-value card because yeah. I happen to flip over the wrong thing. So I, I can definitely see how that's frustrating. But it, it, you're right. It's absolutely interesting to see how people approach new games. Yeah, for sure. So my sister, she works in environmental, like, you know, natural resource management and that type of, of thing, environmental sciences-ish. Uh, adjacent. <laughs> adjacent, there it yeah. is. Environmental science adjacent type work. So she looked up uh, at my, you know, my game cabinet and my game shelves and was like, what is photosynthesis? And I'm like, ah, it is a game about growing trees in a forest. And Done. It was, Sold. Yep, pretty much. It was just like, all right, well, time to try that one out. So we sat down, we got a game of that, and it was, I think, my either second or third game of photosynthesis. And so I had to like relearn it a little bit, like how it works and all that. It was all right. I think that it's the kind of game where there's nothing really bad with it, but it's also not like going to ever be one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, it has some very interesting mechanics with the shading and all that kind of stuff, but it, I don't know, it, it, it's sort of the, the points are almost like adjacent to the game rather than like involved in, in the actual gameplay mm-hmm. as much. Like they're pretty integrated, but I, I just don't like how getting the points works. Sure. Uh, as much as I like the rest of the gameplay. I think that if, if there was a different point scoring mechanic in the game, 
I might like it a little bit more because of the actual like planting trees, growing them, and like getting the position and that kind of stuff. Maybe something like a territory control game that at the end like you need certain kind of territories and things like that. That might work better for me in in this in that type of game. But yeah, it was still decently fun. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, mm-hmm. the game's definitely built around that sort of core. I don't want to call it a gimmick, but you know, just this this core conceit of yeah. you know the the rotating sun disc and mm-hmm. you know growing and shading and all of that and so yeah to hear you i mean it's been forever since i played but yeah to hear you describe how that mechanic and the scoring mechanic are almost divorced yeah feeling uh yeah i mean i think that's that's just sort of a recipe for a eh, type of experience exactly and that's pretty much the thing we might give it a review at some point but uh that's our thought just off the top of our heads yep well there you go that's a look at what we have been playing lately Lords and ladies of the great houses of Dur, House Silgaro is well aware of the suspicions that have been swirling about us of late, but I have called you all here to demonstrate where the true scandal lies. See now the villain, House Lycosia. Curses! They have been found out. Well, we're going to take you all with us. We have all different information about your houses too have this scandal house silgaro and that's more or less how a game of dur works lots of suspicion lots of scandal and eventually there's only one or maybe no one left standing pretty much uh and then if you have the most points based on your standing at the end you win Right. So uh, let's talk about Dur. Dur, The Lesser Houses is the subtitle, is a game that it describes as social combat mm-hmm. oriented. Basically, you play representatives from lesser houses of the realm of Dur who are trying to advance in standing and become greater houses. But the game doesn't concern itself with, you know, doing good deeds or, no. you know, acts of heroism or valor. No, you're just trying to inflict scandal and suspicion on the other lesser houses so that they are more disfavored than you and you get elevated by default. Yeah, pretty much. You're trying to, like, kick everyone else, like, you know, trip everyone up when being chased by a bear exactly. uh, so that you're the one who survives. Yep. So gameplay-wise, this plays out where you have a hand of cards, uh, and those cards can be a couple of different types. There are suspicion cards, Mm -hmm. which are color-coded. So each of the six houses has a different color associated with it, and each of these suspicion cards is correlated to one of those houses. Yep. So I have a blue card in my hand, which corresponds to House Balistrand. Mm -hmm. And I can play that card from my hand in order to inflict suspicion on that house, the appropriate house. I can only play that card from my hand onto that house if that house is currently favored. And we'll talk about what that means in a minute. Yeah. The second type of card that you have is a scandal card. Now, this card as well can be only be played if the house is favored. But what that does is it inflicts a, a scandal, and those are colorless or black. You can play them on anyone. Now, scandals are important when you are making a house into a villain. <laughs> exactly. Played so well by Jacob in the intro. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And the third type of card, which is much rarer, uh, are event cards. There's only six of them in the deck, uh, and event cards have really powerful, unique effects. So yep. some of them allow you to draw the top three cards of the deck and keep two, which is a much more efficient and effective form of draw 
than you would otherwise have access to during the game. Mm -hmm. Um, You can force your opponents to give you a card from their hand. You can really use events to just kind of mess up people's day. Yeah. Um, And they're very powerful, which is why they are so rare. Exactly, exactly. And now that you know what's in your hand, what can you do with it? Now, this is where the majority of the gameplay happens. So during your turn, first of all, you get either one or two actions. If you are a favorite house, you may do up to two actions. If you are disfavored or villainous, then you may only do one action. The actions for disfavored and favored houses are all based on what cards you have and your house's special ability. But what you can do is all based on what kinds of cards you have available in your hand. So you can, at the basic level, take one of your suspicion cards and play it on another house that is also favored. Mm -hmm. You may also take one of your own color suspicion cards and discard it in order to use the special ability that is on your, your house. Exactly. Or you can take two of any color uh, cards and play a masterstroke, which we'll get into a little bit, but it's a very powerful kind of like, you know, aha moment against like someone else or even defense in defense of yourself. Yeah. Masterstrokes are definitely very powerful. Uh, Discard two matching cards. You know, they can be any house, but they do have to be paired um, in order to have those effects. So that's pretty expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also, as we mentioned, play a scandal card from your hand onto any favorite house, or you can play an event card and resolve its effects. So why do you play all these cards from your hand onto other houses? Well, that's because you want to get them to be, you know, very scandalized or very disfavored and all that kind of stuff. And the way that that works is that once a house has five cards accumulated in front of them, they go from favored to disfavored. At this point, a few things change. First off, you turn your your placard sideways to denote that you are disfavored. Simple. When you become disfavored, you have a little bit of a difference in what you can actually do during the turn because you, before your turn, shuffle your hand and draw two of those cards, and those are the only two cards that you can use during this turn. Mm -hmm. Unless you have some others traded in other ways, but we'll talk about deal-making in a bit. And so... At this point, that like limits you a little bit in terms of what you can can and can't do, but you still have your ability, you still have your hand, you can still do a, a lot of other things. Now, if you have five cards in front of you, and three of those are scandals... Face up scandals, very importantly. Yes, face up. Then you have done a little bit too much, and you have been scandalized into villainy. And what that means is that you flip over your card... And you lose your entire hand uh, of cards that you have. And now you have even a completely different goal in the game and different actions. The actions are all based on trying to get other people to become villains. Yeah. So the villain action set is in many ways much more powerful than the favored or disfavored so-called standing houses action set. But it is much more tailored, as Jacob said, to inflicting scandal. You no longer have a hand to work with, so you can actually, as one of your actions, take a scandal card directly from the deck and put it onto any favorite house, just straight up. Mm-hmm. You can take a revealed suspicion card from in front of any house, favored or disfavored or even vilified, and replace it with a scandal from the deck. Or you can take any concealed card in front of a house and turn it face up. Yep. And 
One of the reasons that uh, you can't add cards to people that are already disfavored is because you can't have more than five cards in front of you. Exactly. The villain can can change one of the suspicion cards into a scandal card, which effectively is the same thing as adding a scandal card. Exactly. So pretty much you're just geared towards scandalizing everyone else because at this point you've been you know kicked out of like the high society, so now you're going to take everyone with you. And you just want to like spread the dirt on everybody. This actually brings us to how the game is scored in general. There are you know three different tiers of where you can be at the end of the game. The game ends when there's either one or zero favorite houses left. So you know it's either the last one standing or the best of the people available. Yeah, it's not who who has no mud. It's who has the least mud on them. Exactly, exactly, and so. The way that scoring works is if you are a favorite house, you start with 10 points. You subtract one point per suspicion card that is in front of you and two points per scandal card that's in front of you. Mm -hmm. For a disfavored house, you go nine points is your starting point, And then you have minus one per suspicion, minus two per scandal. Pretty simple. When you turn over and become the villain, you start with two points and then you get one point per every other house that is villainous. Right. So you once you become vilified, if you don't have an easy way, because no one has an easy way to get back from villainy, your goal is to just, you're a villain, you're a villain, everyone here is a villain. You want to... It's like Oprah, except for villainy. Right. You want to spread the misery as much as possible mm -hmm. at that point. Exactly. And so the, the other thing that you have in front of you is actually agendas. Every house has their agenda that they want to have fulfilled. And these are secret. You choose from two of them at the beginning of the game. And these usually have something to do with the houses around you or maybe the entire table. They could be anything from have more disfavored than villainous houses, have the two houses uh, adjacent to you, have different social standings, other things like that. And they give you just extra points. So it's just goals that you have to work with. Right. And so, I mean, thinking about the scoring, you've only got the three brackets and then within that, everybody has different amounts of, of suspicion or scandal. But really the agendas and whether or not you complete them and how many points they're worth, that's what's going to set you apart. So you're yeah. not just looking for ways to, you know, get out with the minimum amount of suspicion. You really want to complete your agenda because that's a lot of what's going to give you an edge. Exactly. Now, there are a few other mechanics that are in the game itself. The first is the conspiracy. Mm -hmm. So once you are dealt a house, you are also dealt face down and in secret a conspiracy. And that means that you have spies in another person's house. It can do a few things. First off, whenever it's revealed which, which house that uh, you have a conspiracy with, someone is taking a scandal. Yes. And based on how it is revealed, that determines who takes the scandal. So if you reveal... By yourself, because you are allowed to do that if you are favored and you can just be like, hey, I have spies at this house. Then, of course, that's a scandal. Like, you know, oh my God, you're spying on someone. As if everyone doesn't know what's already going on. So then you would take the scandal. But if someone deals a you know suspicion card on you or any kind of card that takes you from favored to disfavored, the conspiracy card automatically flips. Mm-hmm. And at this point, it's whoever is the target of your conspiracy that takes the scandal. 
Right. You can really carefully play with these competing social forces. You know, you can draw aggro from someone and say, you know, not say out loud because this would probably give it away, you know, but almost taunt them into pushing you into disfavor, at which point your conspiracy card flips over, someone else takes a scandal, pushes them into villainy. There's a, a really complex, you know, layer of, of chain reactions that you can maneuver yeah. with these conspiracy cards, and that makes them really interesting and really powerful. Yeah, I think that they're, they're a very interesting aspect of the game because the other interesting thing about them is that if you become favored again by some other ability... They don't flip back over. It's only whenever you become disfavored that they flip over. So this is important for the following reason. Because if you have spies in someone else's house, you can use their ability. Yes, which is very, very powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, These abilities, these variable player powers that you have as the different houses are really game-changing. You know, They allow you to remove suspicion from a house. They allow you to take a suspicion on one house and put it onto any other house you know you can you can affect some really really powerful strategies and plays with these not just for yourself but also as we've sort of hinted at for other people and this is this is where the game i think really shines is in the deal making aspect yes so you can do everything you can imagine you can make promises you can break promises you can trade cards you can say hey if you give me a scandal and a suspicion card that matches my own house i'll use my ability on whoever you want me to like you can make all of these sorts of machiavellian deals in Mm -hmm. exactly the manner that you would hope for from a game about just being cutthroat i mean really fantasy setting aside like this feels like you know renaissance italy like you know it is literally machiavellian Mm -hmm. and so you know you can really get into those layers of intrigue uh that i think everyone would hope for from a game like this exactly and and that's the most fun part because like you you're you're all sitting at the table and you're like looking at other people and just like you know hey give me one of greg's cards right now and, and i'll i'll do something against him and greg's like hey what, what, like why are you doing that against me it's like no now i'm gonna like, you know make a deal with someone else and then like you know it, it just it just goes back and forth like that where everything is pretty overt and you're you're very much like making and breaking alliances where like one moment you're working with someone because well your agenda is is this or that and then someone takes a card that actually lets them switches the agendas and just goes boom sorry it's no longer your agenda now i'm working with them or something like that and there's just a, a lot of fun interactions in that way because you're like trying to be a little bit coy about what you want to do but at the, because if you aren't then people will try to block you because they don't want you to get the most points but at the same time like you do want to tell people like hey i'm on your side even if like that is a little bit of a lie because you're still like working for your own ends and all that and the trading i think is what really makes it because like being able to exchange actual cards for people doing actual things is like is extremely important right and i think you know full disclosure here we actually had a chance to sit down with jim felly mm-hmm. the creator of this game while we were at origins and talk to him sort of about that and and all those sorts of things and he is very careful not to call it a social deduction game yes because it's really not it's you not. know your house is known mm-hmm. your conspiracy is not but that's as powerful as it is knowing what someone's conspiracy says you know who the target of their conspiracy is isn't going to mean you win the game. It just means maybe you have leverage over them or maybe you can convince them to do something that you want them to do. 
the game really is about negotiation. It's about social combat. It's about maneuvering and positioning so that your house has an advantage over the other houses. Mm-hmm. And I think that's absolutely very true. It's it's right on the front of the box, and the game bears that out. For sure, for sure. And, you know, this actually brings us to just, like, the feel of the game because it does feel very much like, you know, you have that social combat, that, like, intrigue of just, like, you know, can I, like, pull the wool over their eyes while I'm doing this one thing because I need to get to this one point before I end the game while, like, someone else is just like, hey, I have their cards exactly. Like, you know, it's it's a few turns in. There's, like, a villain already. There's everyone else has three or four um, cards in front of them. And they're just like, hmm, bam, bam, bam. And it's like, okay, well, the, the game's over. Yeah. Yeah, the game, it goes very quick. You know, a, a turn, people can take, favorite houses can take up to two actions, Everyone else is only taking one action. The gameplay proceeds very quickly, and it also ends surprisingly quickly. You know, yep. people start to reach this almost critical mass mm-hmm. of three, four suspicion cards, card yep. count uh, of, of three to four, and the game can really be over in a snap. Yeah, exactly. Especially point. since there is really only one way in the entire game to actually remove a card from in front of anyone. Yes. Like you can move them around, you can flip them over, you can do other things to them. But there's only one house that allows you to pick up a card that is in front of someone and get rid of it. Yeah. Obviously very intentional. You know, with a game like this, I think it benefits from being fast-paced. Yes. You don't want to slow it down by giving people the ability to just ditch cards at any time. Mm-hmm. But it's also, I mean, something to note. But by the same token, that also takes us pretty well into one of the aspects of this game that isn't perfect. You know, no game is perfect, as we always say. And with the variable player powers, there's just a lot of disparity Mm -hmm. between the powers. You know, everyone who we have played with who has been dealt the red house, whose power is to flip over a suspicion card, conceal a suspicion card, has made the observation out loud not just expressed later but made the observation at the table that they felt like their power was weaker than everybody else's yeah the yellow house is the only source of permanent card removal in the game some people allow you to move scandals literally around the table and compared to you know flipping over a suspicion card which doesn't do anything to change your card count it doesn't have a huge effect on gameplay it's kind of just hard to see how those are balanced or even say that they are balanced so that's that's one you know maybe shortcoming uh in terms of the the houses and the powers yeah and the other shortcoming has to do with the rules yes this game the rule book is not extremely clear there's a lot of text and there's a lot of stuff just written in there that it's a tough book to get through for a game that shouldn't be that difficult to explain. Yeah, I think we've both made this sort of observation that once we get into the game, once we get going, everybody more or less grasps what to do. Yeah. Like it feels like it should be very simple. And yet, you know, it's so hard to explain basic concepts. And even mm-hmm. once people do grasp basic concepts, the master strokes have always been a sticking point for people that, you mm-hmm. know, what do they do? What exactly can they counter? You know, how do I even pull one off? Mm-hmm. There's just, there's constantly questions and people are going back and forth in the rule books and the the reference cards yeah. are, they're there, but they're also very text heavy and also less than illuminating. So not only that, but they're only one per type. So it's just like the fact that there there's so few reference cards, like 
it's not difficult to just go ahead and have a set of reference cards even it would even be better if there was like a set of reference cards for everyone right now Mm -hmm. like even as they are right now it would be nicer if they had some other way of showing it some other representation of it uh that was a little bit clearer but even just having one set of all of these uh, reference cards for each player would make the game a lot easier to understand a lot easier parse yeah absolutely but overall how do we feel about this game jacob what do you think so I think that this is a very interesting game. I like the gameplay. I like the ideas behind it. And for the most part, the execution is great. The pieces are really nice. The issues that I have with it are just the first time, like when you play it, you have the hump that you have to get over to try to explain it, which is surprisingly difficult Mm -hmm. with this game. And also the player count is four to six. Yeah. So it really has a narrow range of players. And I know that that's intentional because I think that this game does work better with that player count. It just makes it harder to bring to table. Yeah. Uh, So with all that being said, I do like the game. So I am going to give it a play it because I really think that you should play it. I think that it's the kind of game that once you get to table a few times, especially for the price for $25, like that's, that's a pretty good like deal for this kind of game. Play it once or twice. If this is your type of game, go for it, buy it. But I think in general, blind, like if you're if you're just looking at this, looking at a recommendation, at least try to play it. Yeah, gonna echo every bit of that. You know, it happens all the time. Totally boring. We're the same person we know. But yeah, it's it's a play it. I think it's a fantastic game, and I'm saying that as someone who doesn't usually like these sort of social combat mechanics. You know, social deduction games. Mostly, I'm not a fan of even a more quote, social combat-oriented game like Coup mm-hmm. uh, has never really been my cup of tea. But I actually do really like Dur. It's just, you know, explaining it and getting people to sort of understand and buy in can be like pulling teeth. So, you know, it's it's a hard hump to get over. But like Jacob mentioned, very reasonable price point. If you play it a couple of times, if someone introduces it to you and you like it, absolutely pick it up. But just, again, if you see it on a shelf at a game store, it's a play at first. Yep. Now, let's talk about a few games that are along the same veins, I'll say, to Door, or at least have some kind of same similar feel. So the game that I will mention first is Diplomacy. Now, Diplomacy is, as you all know, a game about a lot of negotiation. Yep. But it is long, it destroys friendships, <laughs> and uh, there's just a lot of issues with that. Yeah. But... If you like that kind of cutthroat feel of diplomacy where, you know, you could be betrayed at any moment kind of thing and you're making these deals that, you know, might or might not actually go through and all that kind of stuff and you really like that that type of gameplay, Dur is the short game for you. Mm-hmm. Like 100%. If you like that part of diplomacy, buy Dur. Yeah, absolutely. And secondly, Illuminati. Uh, by Steve Jackson Games is very, very similar. You know, it's got a lot of the sort of horse trading, haggling. You can make deals. You can make, quote, promises of future mm-hmm. aid that you don't have to follow through on. There is a lot more of a, a sort of a an intermediary mechanic in Illuminati. You know, you've got the cards. You've got the organizations that you're controlling. So if you like Dur, if you like a lot of the sort of the the negotiation and the cutthroat competitiveness, but you want a little bit more mechanics there. It's got tableau building, you know, you've got 
money that you can move around, that you can spend, you can commit to strategies in a little bit more of a way than Dura allows for. But at the core of it, it's a lot of that same social combat oriented gameplay. Oh, there you go. Uh, that is our review of Dur. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining us on this episode of Dragon's Demise. Hope you enjoyed our review. If you want to find out more about Jim Felly, the designer of Durr, you can head over to our YouTube channel where we've got a great interview with him from Origins this year. We talk about how he got into the game design scene, talk a little bit about Durr itself. It's really a lot of great content. We hope you check it out. While you're there, you can also see other other content, including you know videos on demand from our weekly streams. We do those every Wednesday and Friday. You can watch those after the fact, or you can catch us live on YouTube and Twitch. Finally, for everyone who is in or around the D.C. area, WashingCon is coming up. WashingCon 4 uh, will be taking place September 8th and 9th. So that's coming up quick. Make sure you get your tickets now. There is still time to volunteer. So if you want to get your tickets comped, go ahead and head over to WashingCon.com. You can submit your volunteer application, work a shift, get a free ticket. It's a pretty awesome deal. So we hope to see you there. And of course, join us next time for a review of Space Base. <laughs>